helpful, and uh, I think you will too. Uh, I enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, so, would somebody read Isaiah 22, verses 1 to 14? Warm concerning the valley of Israel. What is the matter with you now? That you have gone up to the up to the house. You were full of noise. You washed his hands. You had extolled him. Extolled Your slain were not slain with a sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rumors have fled together, and now have been captured with a boat. All of you were found together, found together were taken captive together. Though you had fled far away. Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a, has a day of pain, subjugation and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls, and a cry into the mouth. Elam took a quiver with a, with a chariot, infantry and horsemen, and here uncovered the shield. Then your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took a fixed position at the gate, and he removed the defense of Judah. And that day you depended on, depended on the weapons of, of the house of the forest. And you saw the breaches in the wall of the city of Jerusalem. And you collected the waters of the lower court. Then you counted the, house, counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down, tore down houses of 50 and 40 uh, to fortify the wall. And made, and made a reservoir between two walls for the, wall, for the waters of the old court. So you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take where you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts caused you weeping to, to wailing, to shaving the head of the head to wear the sky. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. But as eat drink, do and drink, for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to, to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven until you die. Okay, uh, this is an oracle about Judah, Jerusalem. You see several references, for example, verse 10, verse 9, and so forth. He calls it the oracle concerning the valley of vision, perhaps because God centered his revelation of himself on the Jewish nation it's through them that he spoke to the people. Um, and he asked the question in verse 1, What's the matter with you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You were full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city. Now I see the people having big parties up on the housetop, celebrating, rejoicing, exultant, jubilant. And Isaiah doesn't understand it. And he doesn't agree with it. Now, I don't know when this is, I can come up with a possibility. Could this be the reaction of the people when God killed the Assyrian soldiers that night? That they all go up to the housetops, you know, having a big party, jubilant, rejoicing, so excited, you know, over this. That would seem to be a uh, reasonable way to uh, look at this. Um, but perhaps there are other options as well. Um, but what the reason that Isaiah can't share in this jubilation is because he sees something that the that people don't see. He sees into the future. And he realizes what's going to happen. He realizes that they're going to have you know, slain uh, those they didn't even die in battle. They fled. <laughs> you know, they were captured without the bow. They, there's going to be a bunch of uh, 
you know, disgraceful people in, in the country who are going to just try to save their own skin. And Isaiah is very grief-stricken over what he sees is going to happen. He said, don't even try, in verse 4, to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Here's this horrible time that he sees that the nation's going to have where they're going to be broken down, they're going to be in panic, they're going to uh, be uh, the prey of these enemy nations that will come against them. So what he sees is going to happen is that the nation will fall to the hand of the enemies. Maybe he's thinking even about the Babylonian captivity here. I think that would be a good choice. And uh, so why rejoice? I can't rejoice. I see what's going to happen to this nation. Comments and questions through verse 7. You see that idea? Um, I don't know. This is too... Wait, I should, I should ask this question before, but you've said a couple times that um, Isaiah is thinking this or saying this, and I didn't know. I just, whenever I read prophecy, I automatically assume that it's God talking. Is there a difference? Does it matter? It doesn't to me. I'm saying that interchangeably. Uh, obviously, God's inspiring it, and God's the one who's authoring it. Isaiah seems personally involved in the sense that he's weeping bitterly and so forth. But I think in that he sort of is a part of God's emotion as well. So, but I, I don't mean that as Isaiah as opposed to God. So some of Isaiah's thoughts about this would be the same as God? Well, yeah, or maybe it's better to say that, you know, Isaiah would, would perhaps share in the emotions that you would experience by having this revealed to you by God. When he, when he knows these things God is sharing with him, then, then he feels certain ways that you'd feel if you knew that's, that, this, that this was coming. So I see God revealing all this to Isaiah, and Isaiah personally involving himself, grieving and mourning and weeping, because he knows now from the Lord what's going to happen to his people. Is it Jesus that refers to God later these attempts were like God trying to gather his cheeks as a hand or something. Yeah, it's Matthew 23, talking about what Jesus himself wanted to do with the people. Yeah. But they refused. So they're rejoicing. Isaiah's not because he sees something they don't. And so he begins to talk about this mentality of the people. That's going, that, that, it, that it will lead to God punishing them. It will lead to this disaster that he sees coming for his people. In verses 8 through 11, I think what you see is this constant theme of Isaiah. What do you see the people trusting in in 8 through 11? Weapons. Weapons, verse 8. Defenses. Yes. There are defenses. There are supplies. There are supplies. Particularly their supply of water. They're... Well, they're clever to creating this reservoir. Yes. What else did they depend on? Oh, the armor of the house of the forest? Yes. 
Yes, the weapons that they got there in that house of the forest. What else were they depending on? The wall. This is only an English thing. But uh, they were depending on their weapons, their water supply, and the wall. So you can kind of remember that. Um, But the whole idea of those things is the things they are doing. Their own resources. It's a do-it-yourself salvation concept. You know, and (laughs) they did it in kind of some interesting ways. What did they do to fortify the wall? (laughs) It's the destructive nature of evil. Pull down your houses to build up your wall. (laughs) Uh, The things they were doing to to try to gain security were self-destructive, you know, in that sense. And uh, notice the end of verse 11, what did they not depend on? The Lord. Him who, you see it again, planned it long ago. (laughs) Everything goes by the Lord's plan. That's not what they depended on. They depended on what they did. You know, why turn to God when you can handle it on your own? I think that was their philosophy. And this is the crucial, crucial issue in Isaiah. Do you trust in God or do you trust in anything that comes from you? Well, they were trusting in themselves. Guess what's that, what that's going to lead to? Probably not to them winning the victory. Comments and questions through 11. I think perhaps because they received revelations from the Lord, visions from the Lord. That's the best explanation I know. That may not be right. But. Referring to their privilege, I think so. The blessing. Other thoughts? How about uh, in 12, what should they have done? Repentance might be nice, wouldn't it? You know, humbling themselves, grieving over their sins and seeing their true condition. That's what God wanted. Uh, What did they offer instead? Yeah. Almost what kind of a spirit? Pardon? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Live it up. Have fun. You know, enjoy life today. It could be your last party. You know, that's kind of the spirit. I mean, isn't that so ridiculous? Although it's so much the spirit of our age. But, you know, this idea of, well, we might be in trouble, so let's have fun. Doesn't make sense. We might be in trouble. Let's turn to God. Let's humble ourselves. Let's repent. I'm thinking of a a message of judgment that led to the repentance of a particular city. Remember that? Nineveh itself and Jonah. I mean, wow. Um, That's quite a contrast to God's own people and their live it up sort of a a spirit. Um, So... God says, surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die. I mean, God is very angry and hurt when people ought to repent and all they can think about is, well, let's have as much fun as we can before he lowers the boom. Wow. But I mean, 
That is so much what you see. You feel guilty, what do you do? We might do a lot of things. But you know what most people do? Go out and try to do something to distract themselves. You know, kind of an escape. Make themselves feel better. You know, I'm really down. I need to pamper myself. I need to do something to be fun. That's probably not the best choice when, when we feel guilty. Comments? What? Isn't Paul put that in the 19th yeah, th- that idea in the first Corinthians 15. Yeah. Is, it a, is that a temple worship type idea? In some sense? Like, a, like when Paul, does Paul use it in the temple worship? No, he uses it in the context of the resurrection. Okay. Uh, we have no hope in the resurrection. Yeah. The dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, if there was no future, then might as well party. Is there another thing that Paul refers to? That's in first Corinthians? Sorry, I was in first Corinthians class and I don't remember something like this. Being referred to as a party. Maybe they stood up and sat down with the place. Oh yeah, that would be first Corinthians 10. Okay. Yeah. Right. With the uh, um, golden calf that Aaron made in uh, yeah. first Corinthians 10 7. Yeah. Right. Yes, JD. Where, where are you placing uh, 12 to 14? In terms of, if you're, if you're thinking that this is talking about the 185,000 that are kind of saved for the moment, okay, that's what's going on at the beginning while they're on the housetop party. Is, is that the same event here? Uh, you know, my, what I'm theorizing, I may be wrong, is that he's looking forward to like the Babylonian captivity. Or maybe just the general spirit of this period of time. You know, that they're much more interested in having fun than in repenting. I mean, you can see that throughout their history. You know, in these last hundred years, you know, after Isaiah, just over and over again, they, you know, they rarely are serving God. Only in Josiah's day, and then that's pretty superficial and brief. Another question. Uh, Out of uh, my own ignorance, uh, what's the significance of uh, in that day in verses eight and twelve? Because if it's here referring in the past tense to in that day. I think just probably in 8 and 12, <clears throat> in the day when they were threatened. Ah, in that day, sometimes, like in nine, chapter 19, I think it's more of a messianic reference, but I don't think it always is. Okay. Good question. Other thoughts and comments? I know I know virtually no Hebrew. You could ask Kyle, he knows some. JD Mary, do you know Hebrew? I was not in his class 
was I was in the previous year, but in my first year of Greek class, the next year, Brother Shrigley, Edgar Shrigley, who died several years ago, taught it, and uh, they, he would have a habit. He knew German. He was a good, good Greek teacher, but he was very precise and methodical. He knew German. And so from time to time, as he told his Greek, you know, he would then give the German equivalent, you know. And in German, it's, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, no, I really appreciate German. And, uh, and there was a man in the class that knew French well. And so occasionally he'd chime in with what it would be in French. <laughs> and so many of you do know, maybe not as uh, in this era, Scott Smelser was in the class, and apparently what well, I heard from everybody is that he would uh, then chime in, well, in Swahili, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's only the Scott Smelser that some of you guys know in recent years with those. <laughs> so that just uh, reminded me of that. We need a little uh, livened up, I think, at the moment. So, you don't have to necessarily transcribe that if you want to transcribe these things. <laughs> All right. Anything else through verse 14? Use Elam in verse 6. It was a nation over there on the other side of Persia. significant? Probably, but I don't know. They had chariots? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of times you had soldiers from various countries and armies. Assyrian, Babylonian, or whatever. So, I don't know that that necessarily tells you much. Anything else? <coughs> This is, you know, the nation of Judah in 1 to 14. There's kind of a curious twist in these last couple of sections of Isaiah 22. In these prophecies against the nations, we actually zero in on two people in Judah. And I think we'll see why. 15 to 19. This says the Lord God of hosts. Come go to the steward, to Shebna who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here? In whom do you have That you have hewn a tomb for yourself here. You who hew a tomb on the height. You, you who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you, hurl you headlong, O man. And he is about to grasp you firmly. And roll you tightly like a ball. To be cast into a vast country. There you will die. And there your splitted chariots will be. You shame of your master's house, and I will depose you from your office, and I will pull down, pull you down from your station. So, God sends Isaiah to the steward in charge of the royal household, a guy named Shebna, and he, Isaiah comes to him doing what? Same thing he did in verse 1. What's Isaiah doing? What's Isaiah doing? Asking questions. Asking questions. <laughs> interrogating Shebna. What right do you have here? And whom do you have here? That you've hewn a tomb for yourself here. You you a tomb on the height. You who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. Um, 
Isaiah's question to Shebna is, why here, Shebna? <coughs> here where? And what's going on with Shebna? He's planning to die there. Well, yeah, not just planning to die there. What's he really planning? Spend the rest of his life there. <laughs> <laughs> or his non-life there, as the case might be. So what's he doing? I guess I took it that he was planning for the, a long time in the future to live there and then die there and be buried there, but it, he, then he to, was told he's not even going to be in that country. Yeah, I think it's his tomb right. that he is he's building. You know, he's really concerned about his future, I guess you could say. And uh, he's got a high position in government. He's going to use it to provide a tomb where? Where is here? Yeah, but where? Yeah, but where is the tomb? In the rock. In the rock, a permanent location, hewn in the rock, and where is it? On the height. On the height. Why on the height? Of course. He wants, he's craving status and recognition. He's going to have a tomb that everybody will see. Permanent, prominent, and uh, it's going to be kind of a monument to himself. What do you see in Shebna? Pride. Pride and and self-indulgence even. Look at verse 18. What else do you, what little tidbit do you find out about Shebna in 18? Very chariots. Yeah, splendid chariots. That reminds you of anything? I mean, not remind you necessarily, but does that sound like anything you'd see today? <coughs> no? I mean, if Shebna had been living in the 21st century, he'd have had a flashy automobile. <coughs> You know, I mean, this just fits Shebna. He's more concerned with his own glory than the, than the job he's got. You know, he's up there working on his own tomb, you know, getting that already, and driving around his, you know, glorious chariots, and, and you know, just, it's a here focus. You know, what do you have here? What are you doing here? Why are you here, Shebna? Well, he's all thinking about himself, and he's all concerned for recognition and position and status. He reminds me a whole lot of Judah in 1 through 14, doesn't he? And Isaiah comes along. You ever noticed how the prophets seem to show up when they're least wanted? <laughs> in the moments of pride and self-sufficiency. Think about the times that uh, uh, Samuel came to Saul. <laughs> Usually not when he was wanted. Think about when the man of God came to Jeroboam in 1 Kings 13. Or uh, things like that. And so what does Isaiah tell Shebna that's going to happen to him? The Lord's into sports. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, how so? Roll him up in a ball and throw him. Yeah, absolutely. Instead of being memorialized before all the people, he's going to be wadded up into a ball, and the Lord's going to hurl him, throw him, clear over to a far country. And that's where he's going to die, and that's where all those splendid chariots he drives around are going to be. You know, I mean, he's not content with just one splendid chariot. You know, he's got all the latest sports models, I guess. <laughs> you know, and he's going to take him down from his office. 
you know, he's going to end up in disgrace, you shame of your master's house. It's the same mentality as what Judah had. Self-focused, self-indulgent, looking for its own glory, its own prominence, having fun, you know, showing off, not trusting in God, not depending on God, not seeking God, not humbling yourself before God, but what can I do for me? I mean, Shedna is just like us. Mostly. I like this little section. I've preached a sermon before entitled, Why Here, Shedna? And talked about some of those kind of things. This is really a powerful lesson. You know, when what we're thinking about is us and our own status, we can be pretty sure the Lord will demote us at the appropriate time. Comments and thoughts? In um, verse 13 and 18, does that imply any exiling? Sure, maybe. I mean, it sounds like something like that to me. I mean, obviously, it's figurative in the sense that it's not going to be literally, you know, made into a ball. But I mean, yeah, it sounds to me like he's going to be going to end up clear far away from there in a place where nobody's going to be to notice it. Shake. Could this uh, two things say? Uh, could this be like heading to another country? Could this be talking about when they're going to be taken into captivity? Probably too far away. Be over a hundred years. He'd be a pretty old man. Um, also, uh, you know, I don't know when I read this. Holding your own team. I mean, that's a nice pastime. <laughs> I mean, that seems to be kind of uh, depressing. And you know, he's really making store for himself, I guess, to be known. But you know, the thing that's wrong about this is, you know, he's not even going to be there to, to live in this thing, right? Not live. Oh my God, he's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> he plays in this thing. Um, something else, uh, I don't know, it's almost like, is this midnight crisis back in Israel time? You have all these chariots and you're building your own thing. Well, yeah, it may seem strange to us, but I don't know that it seems so strange to a lot of people in the world. Aren't there a whole lot of people that put a whole lot of effort in to trying to be recognized even after they die. They want to make their mark and they want to make sure they're known. I agree. That seems really empty to me. I don't know about it. What difference is it going to make? But I, I don't know. What do you walk, think? Walk through the cemeteries and look at the gravestones. It will be very obvious who's concerned about their status after they're gone. Yeah. Some, you'll find, you know, they... They've got their tombstone already there, and, you know, they're maybe in their 40s, and they don't intend to die for a number of years, but they've already got their place marked. And Now, I'm not condemning that, but I'm just saying it does give you an indication, perhaps, about what people think about themselves. Yeah, and they're very, people are very concerned about what posterity are going to say about them. They're going to be noticed. Matt? Yeah, people definitely uh, paid attention to the tombs. Uh, I think it's in Acts 2 where it, where it says that David died and his tomb is still with us to this day. I mean, it was, it was an important uh, thing. You know, they still knew who it was. It still uh, it's paid an honor. It was a uh, reminder of who David was. Yeah. Reminds me, it's kind of a different subject, but it, it reminds me of uh, what apparently Herod the Great had ordered for the time of his death. He 
was fairly well aware that he was not overly popular and he had rounded up some important folks and imprisoned them and ordered their execution at the moment of his death so there would be grieving and, and Jerusalem over his death and of course when he died uh, they didn't bother to execute the order <laughs> but he wanted you know to be recognized yeah Mason and not to take away from your point but in this time it was kind of common to, to have your own tomb prepared at the time of your death I mean Joseph of Arimathea already had his tomb prepared and he didn't I mean the fact that he buried Jesus himself it doesn't seem like he was exactly about to drop over dead so I'm just, I'm just my point is it wasn't uncommon to have your own tomb prepared but I think the point here is not that he's digging it it's that he's so concerned about it and where he's digging it, and what he's digging it in, and that he's thinking so much about. It's not, why do you, why do you build a tomb, but why here? Why are you so concerned about the permanence, and the prominence, and the status, and the glory? And why are you trying to show off with these chariots, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, John? Well, God wants our love, and love has no room for selfishness. And that's the bottom line. I mean, God doesn't want you to be selfish. I mean, He wants you to be thinking about how you can honor Him and not yourself. You know, we as Christians, we're we're you know we're different from the world. Thank goodness, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to strive to be different from this world, but not to take it so far as to. To, to make ourselves be recognized because we're so different. I know some people that they they almost how to put this almost indulge in being different. They they love being different to, to a certain degree that they just do it to get attention. And that is a sin. It's like being like, like in the world and being like the world is a sin. You know, there's there you can take it too far in both directions. And we've got to be you know we've got to be concerned with not going too far one way or the other way. Well, maybe we need to be concerned about a motive. We shouldn't try to draw attention to ourselves just to show off. Bruce? Do you think there's a little deeper meaning in this whole thing? I mean, God could have, this house, this world, house had to be full of people like this. Is he just representing the nation? Yeah, I think so. what they really are? Yeah. yeah, I think this is just sort of an individual that typifies what we read in 1 to 14. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Alan? Is Shebna like in a, like a biblical character that we can read about somewhere else? Yes. Several places. Where is she at? I don't remember. 17, 18, 26. Actually, later in Isaiah, too, I think. <laughs> yeah. Thirty-six three, for example, and thirty-six twenty-two, and thirty-seven two, and thirty-six eleven. He's a really biblical character. He's also mentioned in Second Kings eighteen eighteen, but I don't know if there's any person who mentions him as a scribe. I think he's been demoted. Yeah, which is it was described in chapter thirty-six. Yeah, I think that's part of. I think that's the first stage of the fulfillment of this, perhaps. No, no. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, questions that I wouldn't be dogmatic about with that, but perhaps that's the case. Weren't the Egyptian pyramids mostly made with tombs? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. With pyramids, tombs, I guess they were. I know they were. Is that the only thing they were? And that, that was, was there. Before? That was the only purpose. Yeah. 
wasn't a lot of practical value in them, I don't guess, was there? No, and if there wasn't a hill to put it on, you made a hill. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the things we do for recognition. Ryan. I just liked how he phrased, how he worded that the old Lord is about to hurl you headlong, oh man. Mm-hmm. Reminding you, reminding him, remember you're a man, God can dispose of you however he wishes to. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Sort of going along with that, because the punishment always seems to put the crime. And, you know, Shiv was wanting to go in a blaze of glory, and God says, guess what? I'm going to toss you out into another country, and you're going to die in shame. What he really deserved for that uh, seeking for glory, he was. Dishonored. Other thoughts through 19. 20 to 25. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely around him. I will entrust him with your authority. And he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of vessels, from bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Okay. So, enter Eliakim. Now, he's called my servant, which is a uh, positive title. And what does God do with Eliakim? gives him Shedman's position and all the honors associated with it. I agree. I think that's what he's saying in 21. In 22, he gives him the key of the house of David to control access, opens and shuts the door. That's an illusion, or that's alluded to uh, in Revelation 3, verse 7 and 8. And he will drive him like a peg in a firm place. Kind of a contrast to the ball that God hurls into a foreign country. He's more stable. He's a peg driven into a firm place. And he becomes the throne of glory to his father's house. So here's a, a good man that God replaces Shebna with. Eliakim is a man that glorifies the Lord and a man who uh, the Lord blesses with stability. But, verse 24, what do they do with him? Hanging stuff on the peg. Yeah. All the vessels and bowls and jars and everything else. And they get so much hung on Eliakim that what happens? Yeah, it breaks off and falls and crashes to the ground. Not exactly sure the point of this. Maybe the point is that if we depend too much, even on a good man, even good men will fall. You know, we can't hang too much on them. 
you know, Shebna shows that you're not self-sufficient. Noahicum maybe shows you're not sufficient for others. You know, no man can, can bear what's supposed to be put on the Lord. And uh, almost, it almost makes me wonder if there's any kind of a literal reference to nepotism. You know, you know what nepotism is? You know, it's like all your friends and relatives, you know, hanging on and getting the, you know, you get, you become a, you know, governor, and so you employ, you know, everybody you know, and give them a bunch of money and so forth. Or uh, owner of a company gets all their kids and grandkids and friends and relatives and employs them, and you know, all that. Maybe that's kind of that idea. But, but at any rate, I think it's the idea we can't, we can't take any man, even a man who's a peg in a firm place, and hang on him. Because eventually, they'll get to be too much and he'll fall. Trust the Lord. Comments and questions? Shane? Can we see that with Moses? At some point, he was was weary of what he was going through. And he he asked God and said, he says in the double chapter, he says, is this all that I'm here for? Am I here just to hear the people complain? I can't take this any longer. So he faltered at times. I said, fell, yes, yeah. Other thoughts? <clears throat> Can you repeat again what you think 22 means? I think he has uh, control of access to the kingship, to, to the king perhaps, as the key of the house of David, and he opens and shuts the door. Um, so he's got some sort of authority for entrance into the house of the king. Alan? Would this be like messianic or whatever? Because like since it's alluded to in Revelation. Yeah, I think he sort of becomes a messianic shadow. Almost a Peter. I mean, it seems like the, the words Peter. Yeah, but even closer in Revelation 3. Kind of as a faithful yeah. kind of like a faithful servant, you know, finding the things that are God's. The wording seems to be similar to what Jesus says. Okay. That's a good point. Matthew 16. Other comments? Okay. The last specific judgment oracle. We started this back in chapter 13 and we've been through a lot of countries. You know, Babylon and Assyria and the Philistines and Moab and Damascus, Syria, Israel, uh, the Ethiopians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians again, the Edomites, the Arabians, the people of Judah. Okay? So, chapter 23, verses 1 to 14. The burden against Tyre. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no harbor, no house, no harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, you inhabitants of the coastline, you merchants of Sidon, and those who cross the sea are filled. And on great waters the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the river, is her revenue. And she is a marketplace for the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children. Neither do I rear young men, nor bring up virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they will also be in agony at the report of Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish, wail you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your joyous city whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her far off to dwell? 
Who has taken this counsel and gets tired of crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable, honorable of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to bring dishonor, to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Overflow through your land like the river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, You will rejoice no more, O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this people which was not, Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers, they raised up its palaces, and brought it to ruin. Well, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Okay. Now, this is an oracle about where? Tyre. What do you know about Tyre? Where were they? Yes. You see Judah and Israel? They were up here on the coast north of Israel. What was Tyre's claim to fame? Sidon. <laughs> Their sister city, Sidon, yeah. They felt fairly strong, but I think there's even a stronger claim to fame. It was a great port city and therefore became a great trading city, a great merchant city. I'll tell you, it's so much like, in many ways, I think the way, uh, if you know a lot about the world, uh, there's another city very much like it in our world. Maybe even more so 10 or 15 years ago. Hong Kong? Hong Kong, absolutely. You know, I mean, Tyre did not control a great deal of land area. Tyre did not have a great army or anything like that. They were an economic superpower. Because of the fact that so much of the trade, so much of the shipping came through Tyre, they became just a great economic, you know, uh, power, um, were involved with nations all over the place, you know, buying and selling. And uh, you find a lot of references to Tyre in various passages, a lot of... um, You know, Ezekiel has a long section about the judgment against Tyre. And here, um, he says the oracle concerning Tyre, wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed. Other nations would be greatly affected by Tyre's destruction because they were trading partners. And Tarshish was that far away port city. And so Tyre is destroyed. They lose a lot of their... Um, you know, trading that they did through Tyre. And, um, you know, he talks a lot about their trading and and their uh, shipping and so forth. Um, He says in verse 3, the grain of the Nile, the harvest of the river was her revenue. She was the market of nations. And and she's being brought down. And it brings anguish in verse 5 to Egypt and uh, to Tarshish and it seems just like a big blow because they're the uh, city from antiquity in verse 7 whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places she's a great city it's just so hard to see her go down so hard to accept that even a great city like Tyre will be brought low not totally annihilated here but brought down greatly comments and questions on those first seven verses Do we know what 
brought these people down? Is there like a country that... Will, oh, what nation? Or is there a nation that, yeah? Probably. <laughs> this is tough. I, I, I'm going to, for my purposes for the time being, say the Assyrians at about the same time that Sennacherib invaded Judah, conquered Tyre, didn't destroy it, but dominated them. They were destroyed later, and some other prophecies and other, like Ezekiel, we'll talk about that. They were actually destroyed in a matter of stages, because uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, in fact, what is that passage? Can't come up with it right now. Where is it that God gives... Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar in exchange for not having uh, I'm not seeing it in Daniel is that right? no he gives Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar in exchange for him not being able to conquer Tyre or get anything out of his work against Tyre is that, is that Ezekiel? Or Jeremiah. Yeah. Somehow or other, I've just lost that passage entirely. But there is one back there somewhere, Jeremiah or Ezekiel, I think, where Nebuchadnezzar did the Lord's work in um, battling against Tyre, but didn't get anything out of it. Uh, because what Tyre did was to move to the island off Tyre and rebuild there and took their stuff with them so they won a spoil off of that and so God gave Nebuchadnezzar Egypt as kind of the revenue source to get spoil since he did all this work against Tyre for God but didn't get anything out of it it's a passage like that somewhere alright thank you Ezekiel 29 exactly yeah that's it I don't know why I couldn't think of that. But uh, verse 18 of Ezekiel 29, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, every shoulder was rubbed bare. But he and his army had no wages from Tyre for the labor that he performed against it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He will carry off her wealth and capture her spoil and seize her plunder. It will be wages for his army. I've given him the land of Egypt for his labor, which he performed because they acted for me. Yeah, exactly. So, that's a second stage. Then um, Alexander the Great <laughs> did a really uh, interesting thing. He wanted to conquer the island of Tyre, so he took all the rubbish and ruins of the mainland city that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, threw it into the sea, made a causeway, and marched into the island and conquered the island city of Tyre. <laughs> And uh, so by the time of the New Testament, Tyre was not a very important city at all. Mentioned in Acts 21, but not nearly the superpower they had been. But this, I think, is before that. I really think that this humiliation of Tyre was what the Assyrians did about 700. Yeah. And I don't have any historical data to that, so I'm just thinking about it. <clears throat> about it. But uh, it would seem like if, after the Babylonians take the, the nation of Judah away, there aren't very many people left in that area that would need to buy anything, which would decrease tire significance from a 
um, economic perspective. So even if they were still there physically as a city, they wouldn't have anybody to trade with, and they'd have to, you know, turn ships away. Because yeah, I don't know how true that would be, but maybe to some extent. Other things through seven. Well, I think the idea. Let's see, I got something about that in my notes. No, I don't. Forgotten what I think about that. <laughs> I do think something about. It. I don't remember what it is though. Other questions I can't answer. Four. You remind me sometimes to look at my notes. I've got a note on that somewhere. I still have it in my outline. And so, who has planned this verse 8 against Tyre? Well, verse 9. The Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty. I'm just impressed with how much everything goes according to the Lord's plan. I really think that would be a cool thing to trace through Isaiah. I've not done it. But you just see it coming up all the time. That everything's happening because it's the Lord that planned it. And why did he plan it? Verse 9? Yes! Because of pride. We see that anywhere in Isaiah? Yeah. God brings pride down. That's what he always does. And... Look at how easily God does it. Verse 11, what does he have to do? Stretch out his hand and... Oh yeah, and what else does he do? Gives a command. His hand and his voice is all it takes to bring Tyre down. And so, you know, Sidon is crushed... Um, and uh, Babylon is kind of a parallel to that the Chaldeans um, they'll be punished as well and so you know you see God's what God does against Tyre serves as a warning for a lot of other countries it just shows you what God thinks about pride and how he controls what's going on on the earth comments and questions about this against Tyre. Okay. Now here's the rest of the story with Tyre. 15 to 18. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of seventy years, the Lord will visit Tyre, and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. She will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. So after 70 years, what happens? Hold 
trading again. Yes. She's like an old prostitute that picks up the harp and starts singing the song trying to track more customers. Now, I don't know a lot about this, but I am beginning to see that there are some passages in the Bible that use the figure of harlotry for the idea of, of making life's decisions on the basis of material gain. So it's really the idea of selling yourself out for money. Not sexually, but materially. You know, you do things to get money. That's the essence of prostitution. Um, and so nations and peoples that are focused on material gain are harlots in one sense of the term. They sell themselves for money. I think that's the sense in which Tyre, which is a major economic powerhouse, is a prostitute. Before we go for comments there, how are we temperature-wise in here? How many are too warm? Why don't you open that just a little bit, Post? Yeah, about like that. That's cool. <laughs> That'd be really cool. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. And then, eventually, in verse 18, her gain and her harlot's wages go to God. You know, in the end, she brings her wealth to the Lord. And I would cite... Acts 21.7, there's a church in Tyre. And maybe even Luke 7, where that sinner woman comes and, and brings the perfume and anoints Jesus' feet. Acts 21.7 and Luke 7, the end of the chapter. Alright, comments and questions about this. Yeah, that's a good point. Definitely. Other thoughts? Hiram, actually. Yes, Hiram, yeah, that's right. All those cedars. That's the end of this section of this section. <laughs> of this section. <laughs> because we are in the section from 6 to 39 dealing with trust in God in their immediate context. Then we're in the section of that dealing with the judgment of the nations, 13 to 27. We're, we've been in the section of that that deals with specific nations, 13 to 23. 24 to 27 are still kind of judgment passages about the world, but not specific nations for the most part, and really kind of different. I don't know exactly how I want to describe 24 to 27. We'll just have to look at it and you'll see. 
but it's uh, a little different kind of a section. So, chapter 24, verses 1 to 6. The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will, he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. What a powerful statement of judgment. What does God do to the earth? Devours and makes it waste. Lays waste and distorts its surface. Distorts its surface and devastates and and who does he do it to verse 2? Everybody. Everybody. Remember those commercials on the radio when I was a boy. I don't know if they still do these or not. You know, nobody, but nobody (laughs) usually will sell you a used car for less money than whatever. But that's kind of here. Nobody, but nobody will escape. When God brings his judgment, it's everybody comes down. Everybody will be destroyed. You don't get some sort of an exemption because of your gender or your rank or your function or whatever. The earth will be completely laid waste, completely despoiled, verse 3. And how can Isaiah speak this with so much conviction? The Lord has spoken. Exactly. That's all it takes. When God speaks the word... We don't speak it tentatively. Where are the convictions of the prophets in our day and time? The men and women who will say, this is the way it is because thus says the Lord. If the Lord says it, we don't say maybe. I appreciate Isaiah's firmness about this. In four, the earth mourns, withers, fades, withers. The exalted fade. And why verse 5? Yes. Pollution. The world had a pollution problem here, didn't it? You see that? But a whole lot worse pollution problem than uh, environmental. This is moral pollution. The earth has been polluted by sin, disobedience, transgression. Therefore, there's a curse. And God is going to punish the people. Comments and questions on these first six verses. Micah. Is this another instance of the Lord being opposed to slaves and women? Or poor people and women? Okay, yeah, maybe a little, but it's not as bad as the orphan and the widow. Yeah, but yeah. 
an equal opportunity punisher. Other thoughts? So there's a few men left. Mm-hmm. So, so not everyone's being destroyed. That's right. This is, but this is more, I, I, I would say, this is kind of a summing up of 13 to 23. This is just the doctrine of God's judgments against the world in general. Not the final day of judgment, but God bringing nations down. You know, there may be a few other nations he hasn't specifically mentioned while they're covered. <laughs> Say? What are you going to comment that I was thinking about? Um, <laughs> Sorry, I asked. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking about how, you know, Isaiah really, actually, he uh, sees the Lord, how he really volunteered for this job, and how he totally speaks the word, I mean, completely, truthfully, and not really holding anything back, which he said. And I know some people in this world that, you know, you say something fairly harsh, they, you, you shouldn't even, don't really think that, say that a little kinder. Yeah. You're not going to see anything. Lord, you sure you don't want to say that a little kinder? No, that, that wouldn't work. Isaiah was not overly politically correct. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say that you were. Yeah. All right, other comments. All right, seven to thirteen. New wine fails, the vine, lang- the vine languishes, all the merry hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases, they shall not drink wine with a song, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it, the city of confusion is broken down, every house is shut up so that none may go in, there is a cry for wine in the streets, all joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone, and the city desolation is left, and the gate is stricken with destruction. When it shall, when it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of the grapes of grapes when the vintage is done. Wow! How bad are things? How bad? What happens? Desolation is left in the city and the gate is battered to ruin. Alright, the city's battered and broken. But more seriously. Nobody has any wine to drink. Yeah. <laughs> You're, that's it. We just appreciated that you were the one who said it, John. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you'll, you'll be our man for the vices, but uh. well, it's just you know you see so much in verses seven through nine what the world depends on for pleasure, don't you? I mean, drinking and revelry and drinking and music and drinking and entertainment. You know, but that's that's what they're thinking about. This self-indulgent lifestyle. It's it's just having a good time all the time. 
and you take that good time away, whoa, that's that's bad. You take the spirits away. You know, that's really bad. They don't have anything to have fun with. God's judgment is going to turn their joy and their merrymaking into gloom. That's exactly what the Lord's going to do. He's going to take away these things that, that you know, hype them up and, you know, stimulate them and whatever. So it's a really powerful, powerful uh, passage. You know, in 1 to 6, he's talking more in general terms. In 7 to 13, he's hitting them where it hurts. You know, and there's this outcry in the streets, verse 11, concerning the wine. You know, there's nothing to drink. You know, and the city's broken down, and we don't have anything to drink. And, uh, you know, they have no way to escape. They have nothing to, uh, to give them fun. What do you do when there's no fun left? So, the, the, the world is destroyed one to six, but more importantly, people's lives don't have the fun and drink. Verses 7 to 13. Comments and questions? It illustrates the desperation of a life that's not focused on God. There's a cry for wine. There's no, you know, there's no wine and there's no joy left either. Joy and wine are, you know, it's a one-to-one ratio. If you don't have wine, you don't have joy. And you contrast that with the life. Uh, well, I mean, the life described in chapter 25, looking ahead a little bit. And it's just such a huge difference. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yes, Micah. This reminds me of when we were talking about how uh, people in hell are kind of the same as they are in earth, and that they still desire the same things and have the same self-centered uh, attitude and they're just miserable because those things aren't uh, satisfied at all and sometimes maybe we think I, I want to go ahead and have as much fun as I can now and then eventually when it's taken away you know that'll be okay it's not that big of a deal but the fact is that it yeah, yeah. A life based on these things is empty to start with, and you take them away, and it's a vacuum. Other thoughts? There's also this problem, like our society today. Even take away the drinking, just this mentality of we have to be partying. I mean, our age is just oh, let's all do something all the time and we lose our focus on God and, you know, the personal meditation time to look at God's word that we should be, you know, maturing and coming to that stage in life. Absolutely. We have to have constant entertainment, <laughs> constantly enjoying ourselves that self-indulgent almost escape sort of a thing meditation is bad because I have to really think and I have to face myself and that's not something a lot of times we want to do yes soberness in a more serious way is necessary they're missing their their music and their drinking, like, that's their escape. But for us, like, what do you do when you turn the TV off? Oh, my goodness, you know. <laughs> constant entertainment. Can't go to movies anymore? What? You know, I think that would be simple. Aren't we the generation that has to have constant noise? Constant busyness, too. Yes. If you're not triple booked, then they, you know, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> I love 
up that line. <laughs> Other thoughts? The, the desperation in verse 13 is very powerful. Like the shaking of an olive tree, like you bring your grapes from the vintage. Get all the good grapes if you're so desperate that you just keep picking even though there's nothing left. Yes. And, uh, I mean, I think that's described, that's, I guess that's why it's at the end of the passage, it epitomizes this mentality. Yes. Other comments and thoughts? Alright, let's take a break and we'll uh, study again in 15 or 20 minutes.